Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land-use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On this episode of Conversations, I will be talking with Radflow Shock Technology owner, Glenn Klassen. Glenn, am I saying the last name correctly? Yeah, Klassen. You're close enough. Okay. Excellent. So, Glenn, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with us this evening, and uh, so we can find out more about you. Uh, Thanks, Rich. I appreciate you having me on. So let's jump right in and start at the very beginning. I know that you were born in South Africa, but tell us more about it. Where, where in South Africa? Uh, so I was born in a in a relatively small town just south of Johannesburg uh, in in South Africa. It's a place called Terenachen, which in a, a translation is means association, and it was a big uh, steel a steel uh, town, and my dad. Uh, ran the uh, Chrysler dealership there. Um, we moved to Johannesburg, 1969 or so, and my dad was in the motor trade all his life, and and that's where I, you know, I grew up for the rest of my time in South Africa. It was in Johannesburg. I went to school there, primary and high school. I, I went to boarding school for four years. Uh, I went to university there, um, and I got my first job working at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange there as a, a foreign ex- as, as a stock exchange dealer. Okay. And what was what was school like? I have these visions of South Africa besides the wildlife. We had a daughter that spent a, a week or two there doing a, a dance and, and singing thing that they went around doing um, with the school that she was in, performing. I'm sh- And I've got a couple other friends that have come from South Africa to the United States, but I don't know anything about what the education system was like there and what, you know, what kind, you know, I'm only familiar with the United States. So can you enlighten us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the education system, you know, first of all, I, I need to point out that, you know, I grew up in a, in a country where um, black and white people were separated, you know, with apartheid. And 
growing up as a small kid, you're not aware of that stuff until you become aware in high school and then you realize that there's a problem going on. But, you know, you, there's not much you can do about it. But, you know, my education was fantastic. You know, I went to a great primary school and high school. Um, we had we had a first-class education. Um, you know, there was no, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, and, and I would say we were privileged to be able to have that. Uh, you know, in South Africa, when I was growing up, there were the middle-class people like like my family, and then there were lots of poor white people, you know? Um, and at the same time, there were lots of poor black people and, and everybody was separated by, by law. So you never really ran into anybody else uh, except people in your neighborhood. Um, but going to school was similar to going to school here. You know, you had all your friends and you played sports and all the parents got involved with all the different activities. And, um, but, you know, not being aware of, of anything socially or politically about how the country ran or, you know, that we should be aware of until much later when I was older. Right. So what kind of, what kind of sports, um, I would imagine more like rugby and stuff. So in primary school, uh, it's an interesting thing. You know, the the Afrikaans uh, primary schools play rugby from the age of five years old. Wow. Um, but English primary schools only you played soccer in primary school, and then uh, you went to high school and played rugby. We didn't play rug, uh, soccer in high school, so I played uh, soccer and cricket in primary school, and in high school I played rugby and I and I swam. Okay, you were a swimmer. And were you yeah. a long distance or a short distance? No, I swam, you know, 100, 200 meter uh, races. That was it. None of the 500 or 1500 meter races. Yeah, in high school, I swam the 500. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's too much like hard work. <laughs> yeah, we just swam and swam and swam. That's that's all I can equate it to. We just kept swimming. <laughs> Everybody oh, wanted to be a sprinter. But I was yes. not fast enough to be a sprinter. But I was, <laughs> but I was fast enough to carry it for a longer distance. You know what I mean? Well, so. and, and that's uh, you know that works. You know, throughout your whole life, is people sprinting to the finish, and other people are in it for the long haul. That's just the way it is. Yeah, you put it that way, and yeah, that's kind of what I've done with the rock crawling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then, schooling. What what kind of subjects were? Was it the basic education there? Or did they give you a lot of electives to give you an ex- more of an experience of what was available? Uh, in primary school, it was it was general math, uh, science, English, uh, Afrikaans as a language, uh, geography, history, um, you know, and there was art and music and all this kind of stuff. And then in high school, you could choose you know, between doing biology and, and uh, accounting, or you could, you know, did you, you, you did have a few electives that you could choose to try and specialize in, but that was, uh, and in South Africa, primary school went up to, you know, you were 12 in primary school and you went to high school when you were 13. Um, so there was five years in high school and seven years in primary. Okay. All right. And uh, after primary school and, uh, High school, you uh, you did college then as well. Yes, I went to. Well, I did two years of national service. You know, back in the day, we were fighting the war. We were fighting communism and everything else. Right. Uh, so, I, I, 
national service was mandatory. So I spent two years in the military. So I'm a veteran, I suppose you could call me. But, you know, it's uh, it was an interesting time of my life. I met some great people and uh, got to see things, uh, you know, different parts of Southern Africa that I would never have been able to do. But ultimately, it was two years of time wasted trying to get on with my life. But on the other hand, it was really, really good because it made you mature and understand how people work. There were so many different types of people in the military and, uh, you know, trying to deal with all of these things, going going into the military as, a, as an 18-year-old, you know, thrown together with bunches of different people. I mean, you really had to work your way around all of that. Right. I can understand that. It's a, a yeah. lot. Then all of a sudden you're in with people that, that you're not used to and you're not, not the ones you grew up with. No, yeah, and, and uh, you know, so that, that sort of helped me along in my life, you know. Um, and then after the, after the military, I went to university. Um, I didn't, I wasn't really cut out for, for, for getting a university degree, so I never did finish, which was always, uh, it's always bugged me that I didn't quite finish that. But at the end of the day, I sort of had the understanding that if I was ever going to need somebody with a skill that I didn't have, I was going to hire them. <laughs> and that's where I'm. That's where I'm at today. <laughs> right. I mean, you, I agree 100. Um, percent You know, in our industry, there's a lot of DIY guys, do it yourself, yeah. that yeah. are great welders and fabricators, and they may have a second job. Um, but there's others that have made it a business. I learned a long time ago. I'm better off hiring somebody to do the fab work. Yeah. You know, it's it's just plain and simple. I have to agree. So, when did when did you start? After, in, so you did a, a little bit of college, and then you went. You started a job, and you said that you worked in the um, in the financial. Sector. Yes, so I got a job at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange as a dealer, um, and I worked there for two years. But it was a really high-paced, crazy time, uh, you know, drink too much, party too much. But, you know, you're young, so you don't really feel all of it. But um, I had an opportunity to travel overseas. Um, so I stayed in the UK and, and did some odd jobs. I worked at a bar, um, and that was great. Uh, I spent uh, three months working in Israel uh, just because I wanted to see the country um, and, you know, at that stage, it was time for me to go back. And, um, that was a crazy thing because, um, I'd said to, on my way back, I, there was, uh, somebody called my surname and I was like, oh, what, like, what's going on? And I said, did you call me? And I said, they said, no, that's a uh, Warren class. And that's my brother. And, uh, so we ended up on the same flight back to Johannesburg. Um, and, you know, when we landed, we ended up moving in together as brothers. And he had started a company called Rhino Shock Absorbers uh, back in 1988. Uh, and he, was, he was working with Toyota Motorsport in South Africa. And he sold the business and he came to the U.S. and he was living in Anah he was working in Anaheim for a company called Raceco. And um, he worked there for 18 months and... He came back home and the guy that had uh, bought his company had messed it up. So I said to him, I was working at, at a bank as a foreign exchange dealer at the time. I said, well, 
let's fire this thing back up. So that's what we did. We worked out in a garage and uh, we had some parts made and we started selling shocks. And 18 months later, I left the bank and we moved into a small building and we were prepping race car, off-road race cars and building shocks. And that's where it started, 1992. Nice. And was this an older brother or younger brother? Younger brother. Younger brother. And so yeah. when you went off to Europe, he basically did the same thing and you guys just kind of lost track of each other? No, we, you know, we, we kept in, we kept in touch, but you know, back in those days, there was no email or anything. You wanted to talk to somebody, you had to write a letter or have a phone number or True. send a telex. And uh, it was just by pure chance that we ended up on the same flight on the way home. Nice. nice. Yeah, it was great. It was a good, a good surprise. And so then you get back, you you get into the shock business, and you start doing you're doing race prep and and things like that. And then you did some military work as well, right? We did, yeah, yeah. We uh, we built some uh, steering dampers for uh, an armored vehicle for the South for the South African military, and um, so that was pretty good until there was a moratorium on defense spending, so we lost that. You know, and in, in any typical small business, there's massive swings of good luck and bad. And, you know, we moved out of the workshop into back into the garage twice. <laughs> so it was definitely character building. Right. And uh, how how did he get into the shock business to begin with? So he built himself a Baja bug um, and he had some Bullsteins on it. Um, and he, it used to upset him because when you'd go to a race, and the bar bug was on the trailer, you know, these Bullstein shocks would just weep. And he hated that. So he thought, well, he's going to make a better shock than that. And, and, you know, so that's how he decided to come up with making a shock absorber. He worked on, he had studied hydraulics so, and fluid flow. So, you know, he, he came up with his own piston design and, uh, you know, he had the housings machined and welded and, and everything else. So, and, you know, the shocks worked great for what they were at the time. And so in 1992, you guys partnered up, and then that continued through the early 2000s? Yeah, 2004. 2004. Yeah. Did he stay in? Did he did he stay in South Africa, or did he come over to uh, to the United States as well? No, he immigrated to Australia actually. Okay. and the, the way I ended up coming to America was, you know, the market in South Africa was very small. Um, and we were making shocks for pickups and SUVs and off-road race cars and, you know, um, motorcycle shocks for for uh, road racing and quads and all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, standard production vehicles, Formula V, Formula Ford. And, um, but he was going to immigrate to Australia regardless and I was looking for a way to grow Radflow. So um, I came over here to see what it was like. And and I wasn't, you know, I was only thinking off-road stuff. I wasn't thinking, um, you know, original equipment replacement stuff at all back then. And we came over here and very naively, you know, looked like a, there's a big market. And obviously there was. And back in 2003, 2004, there weren't the resources that we have today on the internet. So we go to the American consulate and try and do some research. Um, I came out here and, and I met a couple of guys that I met on race desert. Um, and I met up with them here and we had a chat and we were talking about the business. And then I met a guy, 
a South African guy who who lived in the US um, and you know he was interested in um, setting up and running Radflow in the US and I'd obviously stay in South Africa with my family um, and things weren't progressing the way we wanted so you know he suggested that I come over to the US and and you know help him set it up the way I want and then you know for two years and then we'd go home and that's how I sold it to my wife. Uh, you know, we'd go on a massive adventure and we'd travel and we'd do all these fun things. And so that's what we did. We came over here and I arrived with a suitcase uh, in March of 2005 to find that nothing had been done for the business. The only thing that had been happened was the bank account that I opened the previous August was still there with the money I put in it as a deposit. But so, you know, this guy didn't work out with this guy. And uh, after a year, you know, we were no longer connected. And the rest is history. You know, we didn't go back to South Africa. We, we're here now and, and we are South, uh, U.S. citizens. And, uh, you know, we live in a good life. And your wife didn't mind the move? Oh, no, she, she did mind. She, um, she thought there was going to be two years. And then when she realized it wasn't, it was... Uh, well, you said two years. Well, we're not going home, you know. <laughs> but you know, she—I uh, mean, she's definitely been the uh, she's she's definitely been been a defining a defining uh, person in in this whole thing because she has always been full of encouragement. At, at no time did she ever say, "I want to go home. I don't want to be here," you know, and. Uh, and for that, I'm eternally grateful, and I love her for that. She just she stuck with me throughout this whole thing, and uh, it's just like it is today. Right. So what kind of a culture shock was it coming from Johannesburg to, and I'm assuming, Southern California, L.A. area? Yeah, yeah we're down in Orange County. We actually, you know, in Fountain Valley, where, we, we, where my business is now, that's where we moved. It wasn't really a massive culture shock. Um, you know, people speak English, uh, you know, we'd watch TV. So you sort of get an idea of, you know, the accent and everything else. The biggest shock was the food. Like the food in South Africa is so good. And, you know, you can, you go to Denny's, like we don't have anything like a Denny's or, you know, like a, a Marie Callender's or anything back in South Africa. So we were just really disappointed with how bland the food was. It was like manufactured stuff for the masses. <laughs> like, yes. That's why I don't go to chain stores. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we started hunting around for local restaurants that we could support. And, and uh, so we've been lucky enough to be able to do that. But the, the, I think that is the, in terms of, you know, what it is. The other thing is that people are just so busy in the U S you know, people are, life is hard here. Yeah, generally, you know, you're constantly working and, People don't get much leave. They don't get much time off, and um, that was the, that. That took an adjustment, without a doubt. It, it really did. Um, but you know, it's uh, it all worked out. We have a great group of friends that that uh, you know we've met through the kids' schools, and I can't really call them kids anymore because they're in their twenties. But uh, you know, we've been very fortunate, and uh, with, with with what we have. And how did the how did the kids? Um, transition was it was it pretty easy for kids i i see that that's i know that like my wife was a, a military what we call a military brat where she f- traveled all around and never had friends for more than you know one or two school years because yeah. her dad was always relocated um 
and it it was tough to build friendships. Everything, you know, every year people change because she was on military bases. But coming to the United States, you know, all of a sudden your kids are in into a school system that's probably a little bit different. Um, and then dealing with that, what was what was it like for them? To be honest, it was pretty simple. I mean, you know, they were like three and three and five. Oh, okay. you know, so yeah. you know, to them it was okay. They're, they're going to school, and there's going to be new kids. And you know, before you know it, they've got friends. And you know, it's not like being an adult where you know people are a little guarded and they don't want to share too much because you know they don't want to be taken advantage of. With kids, everything's open, man. Just, let's go for it. Let's be buddies. So we were very lucky with that. Right. It's a lot easier transition at that age. Than if, it is, even absolutely. if they were 10 or 12. Yeah. Yeah. No, without a doubt. Okay, good. And uh, so you, you've always, when you got over here, you, you were running Radflow and you've continued to do that and build the business. Yes. And what was the, what was the first product you, you brought over what you were doing there in, in South Africa and you went into the racing scene? Yeah, so, you know, we started here, got a shop in Fountain Valley. It was, I think it was 12 or 1,300 square feet. And, um, you know, bought a manual lathe and a manual milling machine. And I hired a guy who was a machinist. And we made the first components for for the shocks that we were selling, off-road race stuff, uh, on these manual machines. Um you know, 2.0, 2.5 coilovers, uh, 2.5 bypass shocks, 3.0 bypass shocks. Um, and, you know, we, I mean, it was, you know, we didn't have a clue. You know? <laughs> we're just trying to find people to supply us with materials and, and trying to make sure they can supply us materials that are at, at a relatively good price. You know, people in this, big companies in this country want to sell to big companies. They don't want to smuggle the small guy, so you don't get a discount. So there's a lot of negotiation going on with these guys trying to convince them that they should help me. So I was very lucky that I managed to do that. Good. That's great. And so you went into the desert racing scene first? Yes. Yeah. Desert racing and then into the, uh, the rock crawling stuff. I mean, I've been involved in the rock crawling stuff since about 2006, I think. Right. Right. I, I, I remember that time. So then when, um, when you had your your business there in Fountain Valley, you and your machinist, and you're trying to produce a new product for the U.S. market, the the hurdles that you must have come across, not so much the shock development because you guys had that, but yeah. marketing, marketing must have been uh, been an intriguing avenue for you. Can you expand on that? I can. I mean, marketing, you know, I came over here and very, very quickly realized that this was a massive pond and I was just a very, very small fish, you know, and um, the only way I was going to be able to grow my business and market it was to promote, you know, customer service, customer focus, um, because trying to compete with Fox and King and Bilstein back then, sway away, uh, in, there was no chance I could ever do that. You know, I was just a small guy. Um, you know, there was still advertising in magazines, do it sports and, you know, trying to get onto some of these forums and trying to promote your name. And we would go to some of the desert races, Vegas, Torino, you know, Parker, 
but slowly but surely, you know, I mean, that's the thing about this country, which is so fantastic, is that Americans love the underdog. Yes. And um, that certainly helped us. There were some guys who started buying product for, um, you know, Nissan Frontier, Nissan Titan, a guy called Greg from PRG, one of my very first customers, um, you know, and I made product for him for a long, long time. And and he was, I could make him what he wanted and, and he was happy with that. And I could supply him the stuff in a relatively good time. So him, there was no marketing, you know, we'd take out an advert in a magazine, but it, it was nothing, you know, nobody, nobody knew who Radflow was or, or how to get there. And I didn't even know how to market myself. You know, it was more of seeing what my competition were doing and trying to emulate something along the same line. But not having the the money that they had to you know to squash me if they really wanted to it would have been pretty simple but i wasn't you know i thought well if i could just get a few scraps that fell on the floor um you know this market's big enough for all of us so and and fortunately that worked out and you probably weren't on their radar at that point you know no, when, they, when they saw the ad in the magazine they probably went oh okay who's that you know and that's yeah. about it yeah just a little fly on the wall and then uh, who was – do you remember who your your first real racer partner was that you uh, that you got on their vehicle? Um, so there was a, uh, uh, two brothers called – called the Dixon – it was called Dixon Brothers Racing, and they raced in uh, Class 7 in the Best in the Desert series. Okay. And um, I had met Aaron when I came over in 2003, 2004. Um, so we ended up putting shocks on his vehicle. And they won their championship, um, and uh, you know they sold the car subsequently, and you know that car went on to do very well. Um, and then we we got into the Jeep Speed stuff, and we won Vegas. We were we won the Baja 1000 and the Baja 500 in in uh, in Jeep Speed. Um, you know, so uh, and I just I forget the guy's name. Uh, I must apologize, but. Um, you know, we we this was fantastic for us. You know, it, it gave us some recognition. Um, and shocks are weird things. You know, it's not like you know you go win a race and then everybody wants to buy your shocks. It's it's not like Ford. You know, win on Sunday, buy on Monday kind of deal. It, it doesn't work like that. So, but it, it did give us some credibility that we had guys who who were well known in the race industry that were using our product, and and that gave us a leg up. Yeah, that's always that's always good. That it gives that credibility for sure. Yeah. And when it at what point did you at what point did you look at it and say, okay, this is viable. We're gonna we're gonna make this. Um well so the the flip side of this coin is that I came over here on a it's called an L one visa. And what it is, is an intra-company transfer. So I effectively transferred myself from my company in South Africa to here. And it lasts for seven years. And it's, it's usually three periods of two years with a final one year. But they flipped it over that my very first year was one year. So I'd only just arrived and I, have, I was trying to apply for um, an extension. And at the same time, I'm talking to immigration lawyers about trying to get a green card and we're putting these applications, we're putting these applications in and they, they're denying it saying, you know, you're performing the tasks you're supposed to manage. And it's like, 
well, I thought I'm managing my business, and um, yeah, we didn't. I didn't understand that. But you know, I quickly realized that desert racing. I was not going to make it with doing desert racing because Fox and King owned that, right. um, like they do today. And um, so I started making sharks for OE the replacement stuff, and then you know the rock crawler stuff and. It was probably around about 2008 when I, I really thought, okay, we can make a go of this. You know, we had got an extension on our on our work uh, work visas, and uh, we weren't out of the woods yet. But you know, we were making a run of it without a doubt. And you know, we had moved into a bigger building um, in 2007, and you know, things were looking good. It was just before the recession, so we were really happy. <laughs> just before the recession. Yeah. <laughs> How many of us can say that exactly? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, how how did the recession hit you? Did it was it hard? I mean, you were still in the process of building and and growing the company. Did it come to a halt, or were you able to weather it pretty well? Um. Yeah. Fortunately, I mean, it, it was a rough time because you know we were. Um, trying to, you know, trying to get our green card and, um, but honestly, that recession did not hurt us at all. Very if good. I look back on it, if I look back on it now, we didn't have one period where there was no growth. We, we were very, very lucky. You know, the, it was a different recession to what we had recently, even now where people are really worrying their cash. That is a different recession. If you had money back then, you were fine. It was the people who didn't have any money, uh, you know. Um, so we were really fine. And uh, it was during that recession that we uh, converted um, our uh, work visa to a green card application. And um, But it, I had to employ 10 people. So I had to actually hire people in a recession. Um, and I had to hire them for two years. So... But as it turns out, I needed the people, and I've never, I've never fired anybody from, you know, like there were twelve of us, and I didn't. After the two years, I didn't let anybody go. You know, the business chip just kept growing, so, you know, things just worked out for us. Right, that's great. That's really good. <clears throat> so then, your marketing must have uh, gotten a little better. At least, how did you? Uh, you went to OEM, OEM replacement, and that's just basically a stock number change and, and a little bit of design from the racing shocks, correct? It is. A lot of the components cross over. I mean, obviously, lengths change and rod end lengths change and everything else. But, you know, I had knowledge of, of damping and, and valving that goes into these things. We've done a lot of work with uh, Nissan Motorsport on the Dakar project. We were vying to get that business back in 2003. So we'd done a lot of testing with them. So, you know, we had an idea of what was required for independent front suspension and solid axle rear, which really came, it really helped us a lot. Um, but at the same time, you know, yeah, so we started, you know, people know us in the, in the, uh, the Nissan Frontier market, but the Toyota market is where it's at. I mean, there's just so many you know, of them. Market, that market was owned by somebody else, and we we just want a little bit of that. So we started getting into that, and and uh, slowly but surely, just building up, you know, a following. So Nissan first, then Toyota. 
Yeah. And then what was the progression after that? Um, and now we make everything, you know, we, we Ford, uh, Chevy, Dodge, uh, Ram, um, you know, and we export products to a number of countries for all different sorts of applications that you don't get in the U S. Okay. And, uh, the, are you, are you building them when you build, you're not building them to OEM spec though. You're, you're, you have more flexibility on the dampening and, and the, 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 the technology that's built into the shock. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, generally, uh, a vehicle will have, uh, certain parameters that the manufacturers build it around, but we know that, you know, you can get a little more droop out of some of these things, uh, by changing up a control arm. So, you know, you maximize, uh those things and you come up with your own parameters and you know that allowed us to to make these coilovers using you know our components and and our knowledge and know-how to to build these shocks and, and to develop them accordingly okay and are you just primarily a shock manufacturer or what other what other product lines do you have if you have some we uh, yeah we we are we just we, we are just a shock manufacturer. Um, we also make a, a hydraulic high lift jack, which we've had forever, um, and we're in the process of redesigning that. But our primary focus is is shock absorbers. Uh, you know, I, I haven't. People have always said, "Well, why don't you make your own upper control arms, or why don't you do this, or why don't you do that?" And it's like, well, you know, true shock absorber manufacturers have become few and far between, and um, you know, it allows us the opportunity to deal with customers that um, don't feel like they're buying from the competition with everything that they're trying to sell. Right. Um, okay. You know, so if somebody makes upper control arms, we're a manufacturer. We can we can help each other out, and I can supply them, and and you know, it, it works for all of us. Right. Okay. And uh, what kind of which if you if you don't mind giving a list of what are some of the companies that you work with um, that are do, doing more of the suspension besides, and, and you're providing shocks or you're working together with? Um, I mean, it's a bit of a mishmash because, you know, there's, you know, King is in the same boat as we are. They, um, you know, they don't have their own upper control as of yet. I'm not sure whether they plan to do something with it, but, you know, we make shocks for, um, most of the lift kit manufacturers, are, we make shocks to suit their different uh, lift kits. We work with Total Chaos. Uh, we make products to suit Dirt King and Baja kits. Um, you know, so we don't uh, we don't deal directly with these companies, and and they don't stock our product. But you know, we we work closely with them on getting the links from them to make sure that the shocks we do make to suit their kits are one hundred percent perfect in terms of how they fit and function. Okay, great. And your, uh, your plans going forward, the, uh, you're going to stay in the same, same venues that you've been in the markets that you've been running in. Yeah, we're, um, uh, I mean, we continue to grow, uh, you know, and, and it's a weird thing because we'll go to off-road expo and, some 18-year-old will come up to me and say, I've never heard of Radflow. 
you know, but, well, I was around before you were born, you know, but um, <laughs> just, you know, it's, it's amazing what people look at and what they see and what they read in the different age groups. Um, but we plan to stay in the same space that we've been in and continue to grow in, into that, developing new products. Um, you know, we're, uh, we, we were in the UTV market for a couple of years back in 2014, 15, 16. Uh, we exited that because the guy that worked for me, he left, and I just wanted to focus on on what we did well. So, but we're looking now. We're testing something uh, for the UTV market, um, and you know we're having great success in the 4400 class Ultra Four with Paul Wolf. You know he's he's a fantastic uh, ambassador for us. Uh, he's a really hard racer. He's really savvy. Uh, so he's doing well for us. Phil McGilton's another guy. Uh, Jaron Gunter, you know, in the in the in the off-road industry, doing really well for us, um, you know. And these guys, I mean, that's my roots, off-road racing. So, but at the same time, when we have some fantastic uh, vendors that sell our products, um, wide open design, busted knuckle, um, you know, metal tech. Uh, these some of these companies have been around, you know, doing business with me, with me for a very long time. Do you do you private label? shocks for some of the suspension companies um i know that there's suspension companies out there that are that are actually you know like terraflex okay they 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 started a suspension company and then they were you know they now do the the falcon shock but there's others that don't produce their own shock but have a line of shocks that have their name on it are you doing any of that kind of work uh, not at the moment. We did for a while. We supplied shocks to Toytech um, for their Toyota kits, um, and then they switched to Elka. Um, and there's Elka's making a lot of shocks for a lot of companies right now. Um, so no, we're not we're not doing a bunch of private labeling. Uh, we do some co-branding with people overseas, um, and we're working on some stuff now with with some of the Lipkit companies. Supplying shocks for their they're in development. Supplying shocks for some of their bigger vehicle applications. Um, and you know, when these things are released, then we will do a press release about that. I can't really divulge anything at the moment. Right. But we're not we're not currently doing any private label for anybody. Okay. And your uh, OEM shocks, you you got a line for for like you know the JK JL, um, the T the JTs, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and we make shocks to suit the different lift kit manufacturers. So, I don't have a generic three to five inch lift shock. You know, like I'll, I'll call Jeremy Rockwell and get the links for his three and a half inch lift kit. Uh, you know, what, what shocks is this? Are these designed around? And I'll make the shocks to suit that. You know, whether it's you know working with Andrew at Let's Roll on um, you know stuff for middle cloak or whatever it is, we make the shocks to suit, suit those different lift kits for the Jeep applications. And then, you know, obviously on the Toyota and Nissan and Ford and Chevy products, you know, we do the work on and measuring those things up and making sure that everything fits correctly. Perfect. Okay. And uh, your your kids are now, you said in their 20s, are they uh, boys, girls? No, two boys. Um, my oldest son, Nicholas, he actually graduated as a mechanical engineer in May this year. And he started as a design engineer with us in July. So he works for me full time. Um, and my youngest son, Thomas, he is in uh, Cal State Chico. 
finishing off a communications degree and then his plan is to come and uh, work at Radflow. So, you know, we definitely going to try and keep it in the family. That was my next question. So excellent. You led right into it. And uh, how about your wife? Is she, uh, is she working with the company or is she? Oh, no, she's in, she's in, no, no, no. She's integrally in, she's an integral part of this business. She, uh, handles um, accounts, payables, um, receivables, and she does the invoicing. So, no, she's she's definitely 100% part of this business. We're uh, we're car owners, so, you know, she, um, although she works for me, we, we have a, a really special relationship where that allows us to work together. That's how Shelly and I are, are as well. Yeah. It works out really good. Even though we're together 24-7, basically, we uh, – we work really well together. Yeah, it's, fantastic. It's important. It really is, I believe. No, I agree. And so uh, do, you, do you allow shop tours? So if I get down to, to Southern California and I swing by Fountain Valley, I'll be able to uh, give you a call and, and do a shop tour? Absolutely. You're more than welcome anytime. Sounds great. Sounds great. Is there is there anything else that we haven't touched base on that you would like to – to talk about or discuss? Um, I don't know. I, I think, um, you know, a few of the shining lights in, in the, my time, you know, running Radflow, um, besides just, you know, business being good for us generally, uh, you know, we won, we won King of the Hammers back in 2011 with Lauren Healy. We had, we had a first, a third, and a fifth that year, which was unbelievable. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was like a million years ago, though. So that was like, you know, for us, that was just amazing uh, that we managed to pull that off with those great drivers. Um, and then, you know, uh, Nick Nelson, uh, he won Vegas Torino in his 4400 class, and he won qualifying at KOH many, many times. Uh, I think the, the highlights for me is, is the people that I've met and the friendships that I've made and understanding that we're ultimately all the same, but we are also very different. Very true. Very true. So you're going to be out at the lake bed for here shortly in uh, February or January, January into February. You going for yeah. uh, the three weeks or? No, yeah, I'll be out there for my sins. Um I've only missed one King of the Hammers. I've been there every single other time. Um, so I can't say I look forward to it, but I look forward to seeing, uh, you know, seeing great people. And so we'll be there the week of King of the Hammers, uh, shock tuning um, for a few days. And then obviously just there for the, for the rest of the events. Um, so yeah, it's uh, we we just hope for good weather, <laughs> right? And and you've uh, you've part I read that you partnered with uh, Wayne Israelson from Alltech. That's correct. Yeah. So we're uh, Wayne. Um, we we working on a on a on a on an internal bypass shock design uh, with Wayne, which is in testing at the moment, um, and he's also. He has a lot of knowledge uh, with regards to testing and tuning shocks with, you know, guys who run trophy trucks and down. So, you know, he's been invaluable with his advice. And um, so, yes, we, we – uh, I wouldn't say we formed a partnership, but 
we 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 have a, a really good working relationship with Wayne. Excellent, excellent. And uh, what teams are you uh, are running your shocks this year? Uh, off the top of my head, I, I mean, I you know I can tell you Paul Wolf, Phil McGilton, Jaron Gunter, uh, the guys from TMR Customs. Um, Oh, it just it is. I think this is going to be the most guys going to be running our shocks this year at King of the Hammers. Excellent, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And then you're working with uh, Andrew McLaughlin and Let's Roll. Uh, not not on the off road race stuff. No, okay. he's he's. Uh, but we working. We have been working with him on the the Jeep OE replacement stuff for the metal cloak kits that he sells. Okay, excellent, excellent. Well, great. Um, I I can't think of any more questions that I need to ask you. You, uh, I think we've we've covered everything. Yeah, I, think, I feel like I've just you know laid myself bare. <laughs> <laughs> you have, but you haven't uh, you haven't embarrassed yourself for sure. That's a no. Well, so, you know, and no trade maybe, secrets. Yeah, no, no trades. No, 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 none of that. <laughs> <laughs> and we all had those early years of. Uh, like you said, the the partying and uh, the drinking and things when we were early in our life and uh, before, you know, marriage and and working, that kind of thing. I I, yes. I can relate to that. Exactly. Yeah, I worked for an ad agency um, in San Francisco for uh, for a while, and uh, it was a little too uh, too much of all of that back in the early eighties. That's for sure. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. <laughs> well, you know, I, Glenn, thank you so much for spending the time and and speaking with us and and you know, bearing yourself as you said. And I think uh, I think a lot of people out there will get to know you better, and hopefully, it brings you some more business. I I know I've been watching Radflow's development over the years, and uh, I'm getting to do getting ready to do shocks on the Raptor. And uh, when I do, um, I will be talking to you about that. Been working with Total Chaos as well on some things for for that and uh, doing some other things with them with the magazine and stuff. So, you know, I hope uh, I hope to, to, to try your product myself. So Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah. So anyway, thank you so much. And uh, man, you know, I hope you all the all the luck and and the prosperity that you guys can handle in 2024 and the future. Thank you very much, uh, Rich. I really do appreciate that. All right, Glenn. Thank you, and uh, I'll let you know when this is going to air. Okay, great. All thank right. you. You take care great. and have a great evening. Same to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.